0: Welcome to another episode of FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, um, which I'm very happy to report I will now be working on full-time. I recently shared some news that uh, I will be uh, joining Workweek, a new B2B media company that has uh, acquired FinTech Takes, and um, I get the opportunity now to write FinTech Takes full-time, so you'll be seeing a lot more content coming from me, both newsletters uh, as well as podcasts, including this one, which I'm thrilled to continue doing with Jason Nikula. Jason, how are you, sir?
1: I am good, and uh, congratulations are in order. It's just past five o'clock here in the Netherlands, so I feel like I should have a glass of champagne or something
0: for you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Given the time difference, uh, it would be deeply inappropriate and unproductive of me to also have champagne, but um, I very much appreciate the sentiment. It's uh it's exciting. I I mean, you've been writing weekly for your newsletter for uh, basically the whole time you've been doing it. And, um, I'm, I'm both impressed and intimidated by your level of productivity. So I'm going to do my best to try to ramp up and keep pace with you and Simon and some of the other great voices in the space.
1: Uh, I am sure, you know, it, it, maybe it'll come down to a Saturday night or Sunday morning, but I am sure you will get it done. I have confidence.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm a little nervous about that, to be honest with you, but, um, goes with the territory. And uh, one of the things I shared on uh, Twitter when I announced the news is that um, over the last couple of years, writing the newsletter has kind of turned into my favorite thing that I do on a a week-to-week basis. And so um, the ability to lean in even more on it is something that I'm really excited about and very grateful for the opportunity. So I appreciate the opportunity to to share the news on this podcast. Um, I should also note that uh, for the next little while, given some of the changes in my newsletter and um, the way that I'll be distributing it, uh, this FinTech Recap podcast will be distributed by Jason through uh, FinTech Business Weekly. Um, we will figure out some additional ways to make sure it's getting into your ears. But since everyone who matters in FinTech subscribes to Jason's newsletter, I'm not at all worried about that.
1: Uh, with, with, uh, with that, should we get started?
0: Yes, let's do it. So um, lots of good topics to uh, to jump in on. I'll take the first one because um, it's very recent. In fact, it just uh, sort of broke widely in the news yesterday that uh, Stripe, uh, everyone's favorite fintech company to talk about and speculate about, uh, launched a new product called Financial Connections. And um, essentially what this is, is a uh, open banking, open finance data aggregation capability that is very, very similar to the capabilities offered by Plaid or uh, other providers like an MX or Finicity in the space. In fact, uh, if you look into the documentation for it, it actually is built somewhat on Uh, the aggregation capabilities from Finicity and MX, um, although not Plaid, which uh, is is relevant to the story in a very interesting way. And so, you know, apparently what this capability is going to be used for is just sort of filling in some of the gaps uh, within Stripe's existing product set, right? So for uh, verifying accounts or making sure that, um, you know, accounts have balances before um, they're used to make payments, Uh, in order to potentially help underwrite uh, the loans that uh, Square uh, does through its Square Capital program, Um, all of those sort of financial services use cases where having a direct integration to bank account data um, can be useful or additive, that's essentially what this capability is being plugged in to do. Um, You know, Stripe has made a big deal about the sort of More transparent pricing that it's offering as a part of this new uh, service. And it comes on the heels of uh, a lot of activity, I think, that we've seen lately in the fintech space um, that has been around account to account payments. Obviously, Plaid has been doing a lot of stuff in that area as well. Uh, Plaid, in particular, has Uh, I think in previous iterations, uh, been working with Stripe on a number of different partnerships to enable some of these capabilities. So this is definitely a shift in terms of the kind of competitive dynamics within the uh, financial services infrastructure space. And it certainly made very big waves on Twitter, which we'll definitely get into. But um, Jason, first on the substance of the news and the product itself, what were your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, this makes uh, a ton of sense, right? I mean, Stripe, obviously most well known for payment processing, right? Being able to accept a credit debit card or other popular payment methods online. Um, But there are a whole host of what I would describe as sort of adjacencies that it has expanded into things like invoicing, uh, billing, a terminal product for in-person payments, uh, even the ability to incorporate a new company, uh, which they call Atlas, you know, sales tax and VAT automation identity. So I mean, you know, if you think of Stripe's core product as, okay, we want to enable you to take cards. and then all of these related products as, you know, how do I drive more people to that business? Um, makes a ton of sense. Uh, as far as this sort of open banking component specifically, you know, it's a very logical adjacency. You know, as you mentioned, it enables uh, existing components of Stripe's business. You know, potentially account-to-account payments and underwriting SMB loans being some of the more obvious use cases. Um, and in general, sort of uh, the uh, focus on open banking, I feel like, is receiving a bit of renewed attention in the U.S. Given Uh, The push for competition coming from regulators, you know, including some recent announcements from the CFPB that I imagine we'll get into later. Um, uh, And a second thing that I'm completely forgetting uh, and 1033 rulemaking, you know, which is sort of ticks and ties with that. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, it, I think it's a very logical extension for Stripe. It, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, the drama component of it was a little surprising, but uh, I, I don't know if you want to uh, add your POV on on what spilled out on uh, Hacker News
0: and in Twitter in the last uh, forty eight hours. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, so it's funny, right? Because um, I, there are these moments where I realize just how deeply down the sort of fintech nerd rabbit hole I am, um, where something happens and I'm like laughing or grabbing the popcorn or just like obsessively looking through Twitter, and my wife will like walk into the room and be like, what are you doing? I'm like, you won't believe what happened today. You will not believe it. And then I try to explain it to her and it doesn't make any sense. And obviously I, I sound stupid when I'm trying to describe that, um, well, you know, uh, Stripe, uh, which is this really huge company, uh, rolled out this uh, open banking capability. But the uh, after they announced it, the CEO of Plaid um, very publicly Uh, sort of denounced Stripe's move in that space and essentially accused the product manager uh, in charge of the product of uh, sort of getting information from Plaid in order to help build the product and doing that in an unethical way. And then a whole bunch of drama with a lot of other people from both companies weighing in again on Hacker News and on Twitter very publicly And of course, you know, my wife and everyone else in the civilized world doesn't care or even understand, which is probably best for their mental health. But I have to say, since this is a uh, podcast among fintech nerds, I found the drama really interesting and really surprising. We were talking about this before we started recording a bit, Jason, but, you know, you don't always see uh, CEOs or executives from these companies sort of get into it at this level Uh, publicly, even if they're sort of fuming behind the scenes. And I, I don't think that, you know, if you look kind of at a very removed distance, that it's that surprising that Stripe got into this space, but behind the scenes, there must've been some drama or angst or miscommunication because um, folks were very, very, very mad about it. What, what was your sort of take looking at the, the drama component of it?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, my uh, sort of first reaction was generally and, and you and I have talked about this i think of sort of a fintech community including you know fintech twitter to be a yeah. very uh sort of welcoming and generally quite friendly place um totally. in a way in a way that i really appreciate versus some other sort of elements of say like crypto twitter or like web3 <laughs> uh, other places yeah. that, that have a tendency to get a little bit more um you know, balkanized or clannish or, or what have you. I mean, generally, like if you're working on something and, you know, you want to, uh, you know, find a reference point or ask for help, um, you know, there are a ton of fintech Slack communities and fintech Twitter um, is generally very, very helpful. So that makes it all the more surprising when you see this kind of very uh, public adversarial interaction. You know, and frankly, it's like, I kind of feel like everyone involved loses in that situation. So like, regardless of what happened behind the scenes and, and obviously, you know, neither you nor I have any uh, details on, on sort of, you know, what may have happened behind closed doors. um, Mm -hmm. But I think it's just kind of, you know, not a good look for anybody uh, is, is how I would put it.
0: Right. No, I totally agree. The other, the other thing I, I sort of popped into my head and I tweeted this yesterday, as a matter of fact, is Uh, I was imagining bank executives watching all this play out and go, yeah, it hurts, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? You know what I mean? Because I I think that for a long time, Plaid in particular has been kind of on the other side of this drama where it's like, hey, man, I don't know why you're so mad. Like, we're just, we're building good things for customers and, you know, we're adding value to the ecosystem. And even if banks felt a little uh, sort of mistreated uh, through that process because they viewed the customer data as theirs or as proprietary or, you know, Plaid or other aggregators maybe taking some steps that they viewed as not very sort of friendly. Um, Platt, I think, I, I don't really remember a time when I've seen them on the other side of that emotion, but certainly they seem to be in reaction to the Stripe news. And, you know, the other thing, kind of circling back to the, the substance of it that I thought was interesting was... Um, This is a capability that's built at least somewhat on uh, other aggregators, right? So in Mm -hmm. in the documentation, it does mention uh, Finicity and MX specifically. And the the way I interpreted that, and it was sort of spelled out in quite a bit of detail on Hacker News and elsewhere, is that um, it appears that Stripe does have direct integrations Uh, via APIs with some of the larger financial institutions, Um, which I don't think is that surprising, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of the bigger FIs have moved towards APIs and they have the sort of necessary infrastructure in place to support Uh, new partners that want to build those integrations. But the challenge with open banking in the U.S. is we have the long tail of all of these smaller institutions, which individually aren't that big, but collectively still represent a lot of activity that you also need to have coverage of if you're going to get to 90% plus coverage, which I think is what uh, Stripe defined as kind of what their product does today. That, as I understand it, is what they are relying on uh, Finicity and MX for. And it's interesting because, you know, to me, when you look at the sort of stack of capabilities here, there's the lower part of the stack, which is just, hey, we need to have all of these integrations and scrapers in place, and we need to be able to have coverage across a large number of financial institutions. That is, I think, the thing that Stripe sort of took the quicker route on because building scrapers and trying to build coverage yourself would take a long time. Mm -hmm. The part they seem to be focused on, going back to your earlier comments, is enabling all of the use cases where that capability is useful and sort of wrapping around those aggregation capabilities in order to deliver some of those um, sort of services that would sit higher up in the stack, like account-to-account payments. And to me, strategically, that's where the problem for Plaid comes in, because I, I see Plaid and the moves they've made recently as really trying to push up that stack themselves and get more into identity and account-to-account payments and perhaps someday uh, you know, credit underwriting. So there's a lot of, it's kind of that old Plaid volcano picture that Visa drew once upon <laughs> it. Um, so to me, that's where the the sort of drama, not so much on a personal level, but more on a strategic level comes from, is they both seem to be pushing in the same direction.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the question I asked myself as I was sort of reading through some of this was, you know, what, you know, are they competing for the same customers? Is Stripe going to try or even have a chance of basically converting somebody who's already integrated with Plaid? And my sort of admittedly, like poorly informed assumption is, you know, it doesn't seem likely that Stripe would be well positioned to, you know, poach companies that have already built business relationships and built integrations with Plaid. However, and particularly given that the transparent pricing that you mentioned, where you know you can go to Stripe's site and see exactly how much, um, you know, it would cost to to do some of these use cases, it, mm-hmm. it seems more geared towards, you know, that sort of early stage fintech or you know new new product. Uh, perhaps at an existing fintech that needs some of these capabilities. And if you're looking side by side and say, hey, you know, I need some of this like payment functionality, I need some of this like fraud, you know, screening functionality, and I need, you know, bank account verification, um, you know, capabilities. Oh, I can do, you know, one integration and one, you know, vendor onboarding process with Stripe versus having to get multiple vendors. That's where you see a competitive advantage where it's like, okay, like, that is where Stripe now has a leg up versus you know somebody using plaid and potentially multiple other vendors. And you know if you if you sort of uh, zoom out and think about plaid's, <coughs> excuse me, Stripe's uh, mission statement, which I think is like expanding the GDP of the internet, you start to yeah. think about all of these different tools they can build that sit in a in a stack to enable, you know uh, all of these capabilities with a relatively, lower lift, both from a tech side, as well as from a sort of legal and vendor management side, which I think a lot of people forget, particularly in more established financial institutions and banks, you know, getting a new vendor onboarded could be a six, 12, 18 month process. So if I can pick one and get a bunch of capabilities, you know, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do.
0: Right, right. No, absolutely. And I I think to your point about uh, who the customers are, that's such a good observation, right, because to me, I, Plaid has a huge leg up in the fintech ecosystem. And if you're a fintech developer and you're building, you're probably going to want a little more like best of breed in terms of, I'm going to go here for data aggregation. I'm going to go here for this specific fraud tool, this thing I'm going to build in-house. Like Because if you're a fintech company and you're trying to make money offering financial services, then you, know, you probably want to have a lot of control. And over time, you probably want to insource a decent number of those things. And to your point, I think switching off of any of the aggregators from one to another is really, really hard to do. They lock you in pretty well. So I don't see that as being a big threat. But, you know, Stripe has a whole set of companies that they work with that are financial services adjacent. They need to accept payments. They maybe are interested in offering some additional financial services capabilities. uh, But their core business is likely something else. It's retail, it's e-commerce, it's services, it's some other thing. It's kind of this embedded finance world. And I view Stripe as sort of trying to elbow Plaid and others out of the way, not so much for the fintech space, but more for that broader embedded finance universe where a lot of their existing customers, both startups and enterprises, are probably already playing. They're already kind of doing stuff with Stripe around Stripe Capital or Stripe Treasury, which is their um, banking as a service offering. So to me it's more directionally tuned at kind of keeping people out of that market and letting Stripe really dominate there than it is trying to, to steal a lot of FinTech customers from Plaid or others. Uh,
1: Yeah. I think I'm, I'm generally on the, on the same page there. It feels like it is aimed at, you know, a slightly different market than, you know, the, the Plaid MX, uh, Finicity um, sort of core enterprise, you know, banking FinTech customer base.
0: Yeah. And, and not that that other market that Stripe's going after isn't one that Platt and others wouldn't love to go after. And I think they've also been making moves to try to expand and to grow into that area. Cause obviously huge opportunity, but um, Stripe will have something to say about that. And uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we see more of this uh, sort of high school cafeteria drama spill out on the Twitter <laughs> so that we can all obsessively follow along. Um, let's jump through a couple uh, topics a little bit quicker. That was the big story, but um, I know you have one that you're uh, sort of obsessing over that relates to uh, both crypto and sort of international relations. So why don't you walk us through that one?
1: Yeah, this is uh, my hobby horse. Um, there's sort of a, a trio of stories on the same topic. So one, I imagine most listeners will be familiar that uh, El Salvador uh, adopted Bitcoin as a legal tender and was attempting to float a so-called uh, crypto bond or volcano bond. Um uh, yes. So the, the sort of quick update on that is uh, there have been no takers for El Salvador's volcano crypto bond <laughs> and adoption of uh, Bitcoin in the country via its Chivo wallet uh, has been minimal to say the least. So despite offering a $30 sign up bonus, and I believe legally requiring merchants to accept payment in Bitcoin. Adoption is somewhere around 10 ish percent, um, uh, which, you know, I suppose if you're a Bitcoin maximalist, you could say it went from zero to 10% in the span of, you know, six months, 12 months. That's a huge win. Uh, I would sort of view it a little bit differently, particularly given widespread opposition in the country to adopting. Uh, The currency, the cryptocurrency as legal tender. It's also caused a number of problems with El Salvador's relationship with uh, the IMF and the World Bank, uh, which is making it difficult for El Salvador to uh, access funding through those mechanisms. So, I mean, that's sort of part one. Uh, Part two is the central. African Republic, which I'll admit is a country I have not spent much time thinking about from a financial services perspective, uh, has followed in El Salvador's footsteps to become the second country to declare Bitcoin as legal tender. Now, this strikes me as odd, because something like 11% of the country has access to the internet. uh, And, you know, I think only 14% of the country, give or take, even has electricity. So it makes it kind of hard to imagine how uh, the citizens of the Central African Republic could use this when most of them you know, don't have internet access, don't have smartphones, don't even have electricity. So there's been two sort of theories floated on this. Uh, one is that it's um, a repudiation of the French-dominated economic system in the region. So the currency used there is... Uh, the CFA franc, which is backed by France. Uh, The second, you know, vaguely conspiracy theory sounding um, uh, theory is that it's part of a move to cozy up to Russia. Um, Russia's uh, mercenary group, the uh, Wagner group operates in the country, helping the government to battle rebel groups. So that's like, okay, this is interesting. Uh, I read a little bit about it. Not totally clear what's happening there. And then the, the last of the three is uh, Cuba uh, will begin issuing uh, regulations for virtual asset service providers uh, and will consider the legality, socioeconomic interest, and project characteristics of requests before granting licenses for essentially crypto firms in the country. Um, so there's a couple of different threads there. I'm curious to hear what sort of stood out to you, but it's, it's almost like you see, you know, this, um, theme of countries that are on call it like the outskirts, uh, of the world financial system, particularly Cuba, which has been under us, uh, embargo for decades that are sort of exploring how to use, you know, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies as alternate, um, you know, financial services mechanisms, particularly, uh, to conduct international transactions. Um, and it, I kind of wonder what, if any, uh, blowback you're going to see from, you know, the Western, uh, financial order, you've seen a bit of hints of this, um, when it comes to sort of Russia sanctions and potentially using crypto to, to evade those. Um, but yeah, I think these, these three stories, not necessarily big, you know, fintech or big mainstream press stories, but they're all coming out around the same time. And I'm like, okay, it feels like something is happening here that I want to keep my eye on, but, but, you know, not necessarily one sort of crystallized takeaway from it. Did, did, uh, you have any, any hot takes on, uh, what I presented here?
0: Well, um, I'll be very clear and say that this is not my area of expertise. The one thing that does strike me as you were sort of describing all of those, and I, I agree, it seems like it's coalescing into a trend that's something we should be paying attention to is there's this big distinction in crypto between what the use or adoption of crypto signals and what the use or adoption of crypto actually sort of practically enables, right? So on a practical level, it doesn't work very well for a lot of these things, right? Um, When you mentioned Russia and avoiding sanctions, crypto is a bad tool for avoiding sanctions, right? I mean, like all, all of the law enforcement professionals globally who've been thinking about this and looking into it, they've all reported back and said, despite Elizabeth Warren's sort of concerns to the contrary, it's not being used for that. And quite frankly, if you see a huge amount of money suddenly being moved through crypto exchanges, it's going to be fairly obvious what's happening. And because everything is immutable in public, it's actually fairly easy to trace the origin of these things and be able to track where the money is going. So it's not a great tool, at least at the moment, for avoiding sanctions. Uh, as you illustrated with El Salvador it's not a great tool for making payments right it it what's not it just doesn't work very well for that and i think we've seen you know people on the ground merchants and consumers in El Salvador essentially vote with their feet by saying yeah we don't we don't love this this isn't working super well for us and then to your point about the central african republic it obviously isn't gonna work if you don't have electricity and you don't have access to the internet, right? Like that's just, I mean, mm-hmm. very basic blocking and tackling. It's not It's not a practical solution. So the thing that strikes me is, in all of those cases where it's not very practical, what, what, why is this activity happening? Like what other value might it serve? And to me, it's much more about sending a signal than it is about sort of practically trying to solve a problem. So in the case of El Salvador, and you mentioned the volcano bonds, I think it's pretty clear that El Salvador's president was trying to sort of adopt Bitcoin and crypto more generally in order to sort of signal to the broader crypto community that like El Salvador is a place you should invest in. And the Volcano Bonds are a perfect mm-hmm. example of that. They're a bad investment, right? Um Uh, It was written about uh, in a number of different places, including uh, uh, by Matt Levine and and Bloomberg, that if you wanted to invest in El Salvador's economy and you wanted to invest in crypto, you could just do each of those two things separately and make a lot more money than you would through the volcano bonds. But the reason you would invest in the volcano bonds is because you wanted to Uh reciprocate the sort of positive signal that El Salvador was sending that, hey, we like crypto and we support crypto. By the same token... And that that would be my sort of supposition around Cuba and around the Central African Republic is it's not so much a practical decision as it is to your point about them sitting on the outskirts. Hey, we're not really an active uh, sort of superpower within the, the existing financial infrastructure. We want to try to signal to this new potentially emerging financial infrastructure that we're supporters and that you know you should take us seriously and you should invest in what we're doing so to me it seems more of a signaling device than it does an actual practical solution to a problem but that's just my very sort of high level observation
1: no i think i think that's right i mean you, you don't need to look much further than uh, the president of el salvador's twitter feed to sort of come to that <laughs> conclusion right i mean he's yeah. who who is he tweeting to and what language is he tweeting in right it's not it's not something for uh you know the citizens that, that he's supposed to be serving it's something aimed at a very external audience which is kind of curious given the you know the sort of decentralized uh geographic agnostic nature of a lot of the development in the crypto space it's like uh is that strategy going to be successful at attracting people to physically move to El Salvador like what 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 is that I mean I can imagine the outcome he's hoping for is increased foreign uh foreign direct investment in the country you know people yep. moving there to to live and work and then spend I guess their bitcoin millions um but 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 in reality you know beyond a uh you know a select few who've relocated to quote unquote bitcoin beach uh in El Salvador it doesn't seem like a particularly
0: well thought out plan <laughs> Okay. Should we jump to the next topic? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So um, next one that we have is uh, the CFPB. We'll just kind of quickly talk through this. Um, as as uh, the CFPB has been doing lately, they've really been sort of aggressively trying to sort of flex all the different sort of regulatory and enforcement muscles that they have. And one of the ones that was included in the initial legislation that created the CFPB that for the most part has remained dormant, and dormant is the word you're going to hear a lot when you read about this, is the ability to uh, supervise um, other non-bank uh, institutions that may pose a risk to consumers. So just as a part of review, um, most fintech Uh, companies, uh, small banks, they're not supervised by the CFPB. Um, There are a few uh, exceptions to that, right? And so, um, you know, non-banks in mortgage, in private student lending, in payday lending, Uh, those companies have always been included uh, in the supervision authority of the CFPB because those are areas where, especially coming out of the the last uh, financial crisis where the CFPB was created, uh, people had a lot of concerns about those areas. So they've always been sort of included in the CFPB supervision. Uh, As well, we've also had uh, what are quote-unquote large participants in certain spaces like credit reporting, so that's the three credit bureaus, Uh, debt collections, all the big third-party debt collectors, uh, student loan servicing, remittances, auto lending, So, larger companies in those verticals have also been included for a long time. However, any companies that are outside of those, which includes the vast majority of fintech companies, along with uh, sort of non financial services companies like an Apple or a Google that may be involved in financial services, those companies, for the most part, have been outside of the CFPB's supervisory authority, except for this ability that they have that they haven't used much. Uh, to supervise any company that's in that area that, again, quote unquote, poses a risk to consumers. And so essentially what the CFPB has announced they're going to be doing is much more actively using this ability to determine via the complaint database that they have or things that they hear from whistleblowers or even things they read in the media, what new companies or sectors might be worthy of supervision. And the other interesting part of the news that the CFPB announced under the heading of transparency was that they were going to be um, sharing in a much more public way, rather than keeping it confidential, any companies or sectors that they had made the determination of fell into this high risk category that they were now going to be supervised. And while it was sort of posed as a way to increase transparency, I think it's also pretty easy to see it fitting into the pattern of the latest version of the CFPB, which is uh, trying to use soft power through blog posts and through press releases. And now through this ability to uh, publicly share any companies that they have designated as being a high risk to consumers, as a, another sort of tool in their toolkit for uh, sort of monitoring and shaping the behavior of participants in this market. So very, very interesting change from the CFPB. Feels directionally consistent with kind of where they've been going. I would think that areas like buy now, pay later might be examples mm-hmm. of where we're going to see this authority used first. And obviously the CFPB has already dived into buy now, pay later and is doing some work to learn more about it and start kind of supervising it more actively. But I don't know, Jason, what were your quick takeaways on this one?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll have to admit, I've only worked at entities that were supervised by the CFPB. And so when I was uh, working on writing, writing up something about this, you know, I didn't necessarily fully um, appreciate some of the boundaries of what they did and did not have supervisory authority over. Um, So I mean, I think it's really worth driving home. It's like, The banks that most fintechs partner with have less than 10 billion in assets, and thus the CFPB does not have supervisory authority over them. Uh, Although one of my uh, friendly lawyer contacts reinforced that that is distinct from enforcement authority. So if, uh, you know, PayPal or, you know, Apple Wallet does something, you know, egregiously bad that violates consumer financial law, the CFPB does have jurisdiction to uh, pursue an enforcement action. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something that is interesting, but not surprising, given Director uh, Chopra, the director of the CFPB's background, is this kind of feels like a backdoor to conduct antitrust policy, right? So, I mean, he came from the FTC, You know, he has a uh, kind of hardline approach to um, antitrust, and it feels like he's using, he may be to some extent using this authority to pursue players like Google, Apple, Amazon, to the extent that they're entering the financial services sphere now you know on the on the one hand you know i understand the reasonable uh, public policy desire to more carefully examine the conduct and power of these companies however this feels like the wrong policy tool to do that if what you're concerned about is competition in banking and in financial services i would argue that you know, Apple, Google, Amazon entering those spaces is a good thing to the extent that they're the best equipped to compete with JPMorgan Chase, Wells Fargo, you know, Citi. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, trying to come at them and say entering financial services is anti-competitive, um, what well, is the expression? Maybe cutting off your nose to spite your face. Um, you know, I think uh, one second... Uh, comment on sort of the efficacy of this as a public policy approach is it's worth noting that this is on an individual company basis, which is a pretty terrible way to form regulatory policy, right? You have to say Google is doing something we think is harmful or poses a risk to consumers and so is Apple, and so is Amazon, and make each of those cases individually, as opposed to operating at a sort of product category level, which is generally the case, you know, a product or service grouping. Um, So it tends to be, you know, sort of an inefficient way to go about doing this. Uh, And then that coupled with the procedural change for quote-unquote transparency you mentioned, you know, it kind of reads like a threat, right? You know, consent, you know, consent to our jurisdiction to supervise under this, um, you know, category of power. Otherwise we're going to go, you know, publicly release this. And sort of by definition, the category is we think you pose a risk to consumers. Um, And so like, I, I sort of appreciate the spirit of, of what the CFPB seems to be trying to do here, but I, I sort of worry that in in practice this power may be deployed in a way that is not um
0: beneficial.
1: <laughs> I guess I'll I'll leave it
0: at that. Yeah, uh, no, that's fair. I mean, and, and just to wrap up on that, I mean, I think your point about big tech is a really good one. Um, if you go in and read any of the director's sort of public comments or whenever he gives like speeches or, or comments at, um industry events or, or, or testifies in front of Congress, he, he always seems to sort of pivot back to that antitrust big tech message. And he'll cite examples from other countries, right? So he really likes talking about uh, Alibaba and uh, Tencent in China and talking about like, that is almost a dystopian vision for where, the industry could end up and like, we need to stop that from happening. But to your point, financial services, which is the remit of the CFPB is really only a small part of that sort of larger antitrust super app problem. And again, to your point, I appreciate the spirit of trying to you know stop that from happening. I have concerns about that as well, but it doesn't feel like that's solely the job of the CFPB to stop. And so I will be really curious to see, and I wrote about this in my newsletter a while back, you know, Apple and Google in particular seem much more focused on growth in financial services. Apple from a direct-to-consumer standpoint, uh, Google more as an enabler or vendor to banks. Mm -hmm. But in both of those cases, you know, I could see them running into some concerns from the CFPB where they're really flexing this muscle and trying to sort of curb a broader trend towards uh, monopolistic or anti-competitive behavior, even though financial services represents a relatively small part of it. So I think that is definitely directionally kind of where we're headed and um, be curious to see what the CFPB does and you know to the extent what uh, what companies that fall under their authority choose to do to uh, to push back on it. Um, one more quick story. Um, do you want to kind of talk us through it? Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess it's a uh, sign of the times. Uh, no fee pioneer Robinhood, after some pretty abysmal earnings, has also announced a fairly significant layoff of something around nine percent of its employee base. I mean, my uh, they attribute it to you know growing too quickly, over hiring, duplicate roles, etc. So, sort of positioning it as a right sizing. Um, you know, given their rapid growth over the course of the last you know 18, 24 months. But I think if you zoom out and you look at you know some other, Companies in in both in related spaces and unrelated spaces that have had you know sizable layoffs recently, including you know notoriously uh better, the mortgage company, but also Blend uh and Zezil, and even you know completely out-of-category companies like Cameo, uh the celebrity shout-out app, and uh, GoPuff, the rapid delivery app. You know, you're seeing a couple of different trends intersect here. One is sort of the unwinding of uh, the pandemic euphoria for certain uh, stocks that benefited from stay-at-home. Right, you've seen Netflix crater recently, uh, and and you know Robinhood was one of these sort of pandemic success stories. You know, everyone's at home on their couch with their stimmy checks hitting their bank account, no sports on, and so they're you know gambling multi-leg option strategies on Robinhood. Um, yep. That is not, for the record, that is not what I was doing. Uh, but that was sort of <laughs> that was sort of part of the narrative around, you know, meme stock mania and sort of, you know, crypto mania with Dogecoin and some of these other sort of novelty coins blowing up. And now that, uh, at least in the U.S., even even though case counts are up considerably, you know, the most of the public seems to have moved on from the pandemic. And along with that, some of the air is coming out of these companies that really kind of banked super heavily on the idea that like, oh, this trend is going to continue indefinitely. I mean, I think Peloton was sort of the most... uh, uh aggressively uh optimistic about you know how long people are going to ride bicycles in their living room for. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean yeah it, it's interesting. Um Robinhood has over six billion in cash and cash equivalents on its balance sheet. So it certainly has plenty of capital to you know weather the current situation and sort of iterate onto whatever its next act may be, you know, looking, you know, it's recently launched a crypto wallet. It's certainly trying to make a play into this web three ecosystem, sort of a set of consumers that overlaps with those, uh, you know, YOLO traders and and crypto traders that it has catered to in the past. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think it's part of a broader trend of, you know, valuations, fundraising, uh, having a bit of a reality check versus things like revenue and, Profitability. Um, what what was your sort of POV on uh Robinhood's layoffs?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you you touched on all the main points. The only thing I would add is that I think Robinhood, especially over the last two years, really perfected an ability to make money very efficiently based on user engagement and mm-hmm. sort of Speculative activity, right? And so, this is obviously payment for order flow and sort of where that model fits in. But it's also, you know, the amount of money that Robinhood was making early on around crypto and Dogecoin, right? Where it's like, you know, I want to see people constantly trading and buying and selling, and we're going to monetize that activity on our platform. And at its height, when it went public, you know, you look at some of the the information that they reported in their S one uh, before they went public you know, they were seeing like video games, social media levels of user engagement, right? Like it just blew every other uh, fintech and financial services app out of the water in terms of how engaged customers were. And they built a very finely tuned model around monetizing that engagement. I think the challenge that Robinhood is now struggling with is, you know, in the same way that now I'm leaving my house and I'm not trapped and just riding on the Peloton because I'm bored, Um that engagement has gone down, and um, you know the meme stock uh, sort of um, fury has kind of burned out, and um, I think crypto speculation has moved on to other platforms or other areas, and Robinhood's kind of gotten left behind a bit there. And so I think what we're seeing is this sort of large scale pivot to, you know, probably one of two things: either how can we figure out other ways to make money that are a little bit more stable and less dependent on sort of you know fantastic levels of user engagement that probably aren't realistic in our current environment? Or how can we try to recapture the mania by continuing to invest in crypto or perhaps by expanding geographically? I saw that they uh, acquired Zglue, which is a Uh, investment app that's um, based out of the UK. So I think they're going to try different ways to sort of expand or pivot. But to me, that seems like the kind of core strategic challenge that they're trying to navigate around it that they haven't haven't figured out an answer for yet. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Should we uh, segue to our uh, can't let
0: it go? Yes, we should. And I will say this. um, Normally, Jason and I both have a can't let it go topic. Uh, but Jason has such a good can't let it go topic that I'm also deeply interested in that Jason, I'm going to cede my time to you and I would like you to walk us through your can't let it go topic, please.
1: All right. We can, uh, we can share. Um, uh, so for folks less familiar with the, uh, crypto NFT, uh, multiverse universe space, uh, yoga labs, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, which is the creators of the most popular NFT collection, the Bored Ape Yacht Club, uh, conducted a mint of tokens tied to its yet to launch metaverse project, uh, which is called Other Side. So in order to uh, secure their deed to this metaverse, uh, buyers needed a KYC wallet with ApeCoin. However, the underlying blockchain that this was conducted on uh, was Ethereum. So when they were going to Mint, they needed to both pay their ApeCoin, uh, but also pay ETH uh, for gas fees, which are basically just transaction fees to write that transaction onto the Ethereum blockchain. So one of the I guess common critiques of many uh, blockchain platforms is sort of their limited uh, throughput the limited tra- transaction volume they can accommodate at any one time. Ethereum tries to account for this by having a variable transaction fee or a variable gas fee, basically congestion pricing for um, you know transactions that are entering its network um and so as uh you know everyone rushed to go mint their deeds to uh the other side metaverse. uh gas fees spiked something like thirty one thousand percent um to the equivalent uh of actually about six thousand ish dollars um varied at times depending on the amount of congestion Uh, with over 183 million worth of Ethereum spent in these transaction fees. Now, the part that I find the most, uh, there's a lot interesting here, um, but perhaps the most ridiculous is, you know, if you didn't have enough ETH in your wallet when you began the transaction and, and the fee can change while it's sort of processing, your transaction would fail, but you do not get that money refunded. Um, which, if there's ever a Udap, that sounds like that sounds like one. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, the company behind the project is using the incident to say that it must now transition to its own blockchain, you know, rather than relying on Ethereum. Uh, but plenty of participants, you know, in the Minting process and in the Web3 ecosystem are pushing back, saying that the smart contracts were poorly written and poorly optimized, and that sort of uh, Yuga Labs engineered this chaos to sort of, uh, in a false flag operation, I guess you could say, to justify (laughs) creating its own blockchain for its Apecoin uh, and its other side project um yeah so i guess uh alex do
0: without what you will <laughs> that's amazing i mean that is that that's like the um the bill hater uh snl like this story has everything you know i mean it's it really is incredible and uh you know, I think the the speculation on them engineering this in order to create their own sort of side chain rather than continue to rely on Ethereum is fascinating for a number of reasons, but it kind of speaks to the core sort of concern, I think, with Web3, which is doing that would benefit sort of the insiders at Yuga Labs and their investors like Andreessen Horowitz, but it would not be sort of beneficial to the overall ecosystem or in the sort of uh, stated ethos of what Web3 is trying to accomplish. So I, I did see in reaction to this news and in reaction to Yuga Labs um, sort of tweets on this subject, a lot of dismay and disgust and suspicion coming from their fans and people who are are deeply trying to engage with their IP on, on this area. So I thought that was really interesting and, you know, I mean, I think that just generally, and you had a great tweet on this. You said, imagine if on Black Friday, Visa and MasterCard increased transaction prices by 31,000% and charged you even if your transaction failed. Like, I think that's a good sort of point in case. And I know you got some pushback and some good discussion on Twitter when you when you said that. But I, I think it's a it's a core critique that's really important to keep in mind, which is that, you um, as we march or are forcibly marched towards this decentralized future you know we think of these things as being comparable to the financial infrastructure that we have today but it's just not right now right the level of interest and sort of speculative value around these things far exceeds the capacity or throughput that this infrastructure has available and the result is that it doesn't hurt insiders in, in this whole process. It hurts people who are trying to get into it or trying to sort of get into the speculative frenzy. It hurts newcomers, right? And mm-hmm. um, I think the, the founder of uh, a crypto exchange recently basically admitted on a podcast that uh, the Ponzi scheme nature is basically the business model here. And it strikes me that same way, just that at the moment because of the level of speculative activity here, Relative to the capacity and throughput of these different platforms and different infrastructure, there's really no ability to benefit the market broadly. And I, I've seen people compare Yuga uh, Labs to like you know content creators or people who own really valuable IPs. To so think of someone like Disney, right? But it's like I don't like that comparison at all at the moment, at least because like Disney is a storytelling company that makes money based on the value of the stories that they tell. Yuga Labs makes money and its valuation is entirely derived from the FOMO and speculation that they're able to drive around their IP, not the IP itself. And you know, that's not a commentary on how sort of aesthetically pleasing you find Bored Apes to be or not. I don't find them particularly pleasing, but that's fine. That's a speculative uh, sort of subjective judgment. I just think that The value equation right now is really out of whack. And this latest sort of drama to me brought that very much in stark relief.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think two two last bullet points on this. I mean, one regarding the the value, you know, you you saw this sort of most starkly with uh, the Jack Dorsey first tweet NFT, which some guy bought for like 2.9 million and then he yeah. went to try to auction it recently, and I think like the top bid was fourteen thousand. Uh, and his comment was, on it was, "That was me, by the way. I was the one who bid." Yeah. <laughs> well, the 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 guy who owns a comment was like, "No, I'm not going to sell. It's my capital," which I don't know exactly <laughs> what that means, but I did. It did make me laugh. um And then you know, the second piece, as far as you know, the actual mechanics of these decentralized transactions, you know, the the typical talking points of why the trade-off is worth it. It's like, yeah, okay, like maybe it might be slower or more expensive. It's early days. This is going to improve. That's that's probably true. But the the yeah. talking points for why, you know, why is decentralization, you know, quote unquote good tends to be around, you know, privacy or being, you know, quote unquote censorship resistant. And we already have ample evidence that neither of those is actually true. Just look at how much Bitcoin the DOJ has seized, you know, over the course of the last six or twelve months. Um, and you know, look at the ability, as you mentioned earlier in this podcast, to trace transactions happening on the blockchain, given that it is all public. It's pseudo anonymous at best, and so the benefits that you know the many advocates will will argue for, I frankly just don't see. I've opened a whole new can yeah. of worms.
0: <laughs> no, 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 I think that's great. and i we we can leave it there, but i I totally agree. I mean, I think it's one of those things where the contradictions of this market, the more the more volume we push through it, right? The more activity we see, the more speculation, the more the contradictions that I think have been apparent to some for a while, they're just coming into sharper and sharper relief. and, to your point, some of this is a technical problem. I know there are you know, L2s and side chains and all of these sort of technical innovations that are happening that are trying to relieve some of these constraints, but there does still seem to be some of these contradictions that sit very much at the heart of what's happening here. And I, I don't know that any of those have been uh, satisfactorily addressed from my perspective. And based on the, the feedback that uh, Labs got after this whole kind of catastrophe happened, it seems like a lot of other people are sort of waking up to some of these contradictions and the the problems they're in. So we'll leave it there. Um, Jason, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to, to talk with you and uh, we'll do this again soon.
1: Absolutely. Have a good one.
0: Thank you.